there is a lot of awareness and there's a lot of interest in making change and yet change still isn't really happening at the, at least not at the pace or scale that we need. Um, And so it feels to me increasingly like there's not a lack of awareness or a lack of concern or even a lack of willingness, but actually a lack of agency. And so I've been thinking a lot about um, what is the role of arts and culture and creative practice in helping people not just wake up to the, to the need for change, but actually undergo the entire transformational process from, from that moment of waking up, which I think, you know, you and I share a language around Buddhist practice. And there's that, you know, idea that you can wake up in an instant, but integrating the awakeness into your daily life is actually a process. It's an ongoing thing. Another episode of the Conscient Podcast. I'm with Alexis Fraz, who is in California. Welcome, Alexis. Thank you. Good to be here. It's uh, we met actually in uh, Arizona more than a year ago at the uh, Creative Climate Leadership uh, course that uh, Julie's Bicycle and a number of other organizations pulled together. And you were one of the resource persons there. So uh, we I recorded a few interviews with. Uh, participants of that, but uh, not the faculty. So, I mean, not you anyway. So I'm, I'm happy that we have a moment now to uh, to talk about uh, some of the issues we talked about at that leadership course. And uh, more generally, we had some email exchanges about uh, the role of art. And and I really like the work that you're doing um, as, as somebody who facilitates so many, <laughs> so many uh, activities in the arts community. So why don't we start by, by telling us a bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so I'm a consultant um, and a facilitator, uh, educator, uh, sort of an amorphous category. But um, essentially, I come out of the arts space um, as an arts consultant, but got about uh, seven or eight years ago, got very interested in climate and kind of activated around that and started building out a body of work around the intersection of arts and climate and arts and environmental issues. And um, we always had a focus on equity and social justice um, in our work. And so that blended quite well um, with the, the focus on climate justice and environmental justice. Um, and so we really look at climate and environmental issues from a cultural lens, um, thinking about them as cultural problems. So, um, of course, there are technological and scientific aspects to them that need to be addressed, but our position is that there are also social aspects, um, you know, values, social norms, behaviors, beliefs that are founded in worldviews that we need to become conscious of and work to change. Um, And at the same time, we also believe that artists, cultural practitioners, cultural strategies have something to offer to that, um, that there's a way to um, kind of help to disrupt and um, kind of create new worlds that um, that the arts are sort of maybe not uniquely positioned, but very well positioned um, to contribute. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe we'll start the way I have with other guests and talk a bit about the reality program or the reality episode and, and specifically the idea of reality. Uh, how how do you respond to that, or, or what did you what what did what uh, uh, reactions did you have when when you listened to that particular episode? Yeah, um, well, I, I mean, if, I think it's very important to 
engage with reality on its own terms. I think um, the <laughs> the um, the fact is, you know, there's a lot of conversation about do we believe in climate change? Do we not believe in climate change? Um, do we, you know, do we believe in um, racial justice? Do we not believe in racial justice? And I was just listening actually to a talk by um, Angela Glover Blackwell from uh, it's an organization here in, in the Bay called Policy Link. And she was saying, you know, there's certain aspects of reality that are, are inevitable um, that we just, whether we believe in them or not, they're going to happen. And I think that climate change increasingly is is something like that, where the effects that we're seeing are just happening. And so your belief is less of an issue. Um, however, of course, the the degree to which we kind of meet that reality with clear sober vision and can decide to take action sooner rather than later. That matters, of course. Um, but, um, but yeah, and I, so I, I think it was an, an interesting, an interesting podcast. And I think it's, um, it's incredibly important for us to figure out not only how do we kind of wake up to the moment that we're in, but also what do we do about it once we're kind of conscious? Well, yeah, we, you're, you talked about, uh, being awake when we were at the, the the leadership course. And one of the things that came to me after is the I needed to accept reality, not just um, recognize it and not just be aware of it, but actually accept it in a kind of bodily way because I was feeling that the pain of the planet, which is also why I'm exploring ecological grief, which is a relatively new topic for me because I didn't realize I was a, you know, a sufferer of ecological grief, but I think I am. I, I can feel the planet uh, suffering and, and that we suffer with it. How do you position the notion of ecological grief and, and how a, a person like myself, for instance, who is going through an ecological grieving process? Environmental Humanities Professor Jennifer Atkinson. Eco-anxiety and climate grief are sometimes framed as disorders. But in fact, these feelings typically arise from an accurate perception of our ecological crisis. It may be more appropriate to identify eco-anxiety as a moral emotion, a sign of compassion, attachment to life, and desire for justice. Our future remains unwritten, and by embracing the unknown, we are better able to reframe our thinking in empowering ways. Yeah. I think it's so important to to really work with the feelings that come up. You know, our, our culture isn't one that really acknowledges a lot of the more negative, so-called negative feelings that come up in a person's life. Um, it's very much about, you know, I mean, I think that's our consumer model, which tries to give us ways to avoid our feelings, our, our dark feelings or hard feelings. Um, and so I think that the, the reality of, I remember seeing some, um, some studies on um, eco grief and eco um, anxiety and things like that, and and psychologists are really grappling with these things because 
they're not um, they're not um, irrational, right? I mean, they're actually very normal, rational responses to a situation that of loss of things that we care deeply about, um, including other emotions too, right? Like anger and fear. Um, and it's not to say that we should sort of stop in the emotion and kind of wallow in it. And I think anybody who's gone through any psychology process their, in their own lives knows that part of accepting and acknowledging the feeling is actually so that it allows you to keep moving through a process that feelings change once we, once we actually accept them and allow them. Um, and so it's actually the avoidance of the emotion that keeps us in this space of, you know, paralysis and denial of, of reality in a way. Um, but it's uncomfortable. And I think um, you turned me on to Jennifer Atkinson, actually, for mm -hmm, her, her mm -hmm. podcast. And I remember hearing her say something I thought was very important, which is that, you know, grief in particular is very much connected to love. And we can only grieve for things that we love. And so whether it's the planet and, you know, a particular species that we care about or our own children that we're grieving for the world that they may not inhabit or inherit. Um, I think that feeling can be very mobilizing and motivating for us. Um, so I think it's really important to let ourselves feel it. Dharma teacher, Catherine Ingram. Love, what else is there to do now? Here we are, some of the last humans who will experience this beautiful planet since Homo sapiens began their journey some 200,000 years ago. And then to, to work through it, uh, acknowledging it, and then for it to be empowering towards action, whichever action now, uh, any given person feels they can do. And, and often that's also difficult. You, wonder, you don't think you can do a lot, but uh, when you start putting voices together, uh, it can be very powerful. Right. Which brings us to the, the, the topic of the arts, because I know I've read some of the things that you and your colleagues have written about how the arts can be empowering in, in, in climate challenges. So maybe you could talk to us a bit about some of the, the, the theory and the writings that you've developed and, and how that's, uh, because some of them are a couple of years old now, so I, I expect that they are starting to have some impact in the community. How, how, are, how is that work uh, unfolding? <laughs> yeah. It's probably not, well, not hopefully, easy work. Hopefully they're having impact. We don't know. <laughs> well, uh, it's always it hard. It's always hard to know, you know, exactly how your work has had, especially writing and things that you kind of put out there. But 
Um, but I do think that there's been, you know, I can't take credit for this, but I think there's really been um, a pretty dramatic shift in how. Um, so we, the research that I think you're referring to is a report that we did a couple years ago, um, commissioned by an organization called Art Place that's based here in the U.S. Um, that has since closed its doors intentionally. It was a time limited initiative, but its intention was to really figure out how to integrate the arts into all kinds of sectors. So, um, you know, transportation and food and agriculture and climate and environment was one. And, um, you know, one of our first challenges with that research was how do you even bound the environmental sector? Um, you know, isn't food and agriculture part of it? Isn't transportation part of it? So, you know, we had these back and forths about like, well, it's all these things, you know, and they said, we'll really focus in on the, you know, the kind of the sectors that people often think of as environment. But um, I, I actually think that's very telling because it shows us how deeply um, this issue, so-called issue, implicates every aspect of our lives. Um, and it's all of our business to, to figure out how to address it. Um, but essentially what we wanted to do with that paper was look at from the perspective, if we were in the environmental sectors um, and we, the, we, we were, had their priorities in mind, um, what is it that the arts, that we know that the arts can do? Um, that addresses those priorities and looking at, you know, on the ground practice in places, case studies and examples. Um, and we, we, what we found is essentially, you know, we came up with five things. Um, there were many ways that you could organize this, you know, framework, but essentially that they spark public demand, that there's a way that arts can help make issues that are very abstract, like climate change, feel accessible and personal to people. Um, they help build agency, um, so they can, you know, communities can, can find ways to, to take action around issues that they, they care about, um, flooding or wildfires. Um, they help people bridge scales between, this is sort of connected to the first point, but between the local issue that they experience and the global conception of climate change. So, you know, I'm dealing with a wildfire in California where I live. And yet I understand how that relates to this bigger picture of climate change that I've been told about. Um, and then the last two were that they really help us think about built environment interventions when, you know, we know that a lot of the changes we're going to need to make are related to the built environment to infrastructure. Um, and we, we can think about those in more human terms when we integrate the arts um, and artists in those, that it's not just about, you know, we need solar panels on the roof, but like what the livable space? How do we want to reimagine our cities so that they actually serve, you know, a variety of human functions? Um, and then finally, economies that they, you know, they kind of challenge and offer alternatives to um, the way of defining value, value as being purely about economics and about profit and consumption. Um, and artists are very good at this. And, and there are lots of examples of local economies that are kind of based in creative practice. Um, so those were, you know, those were very tangible. They were very practical. Um, and you're right. I mean, since then, where my mind has gone, it's not any less practical, I think, but it is more in this direction of, you know, going into the, a little bit more of the inner transformation that needs to happen to be able to enable these outer transformations. Um, because I kept seeing that um, there's, a lot of there is a lot of awareness and there's a lot of interest in ch making change and yet change still isn't really happening at the 
at least not at the pace or scale that we need. Um, and so it feels to me increasingly like there's not a lack of awareness or a lack of concern or even a lack of willingness, but actually a lack of agency. And so I've been thinking a lot about um, what is the role of arts and culture and creative practice in helping people not just wake up to the, to the need for change, but actually undergo the entire transformational process from, from that moment of waking up, which I think, you know, you and I share a language around Buddhist practice. And there's that, you know, idea that you can wake up in an instant, but integrating the awakeness into your daily life is actually a process. It's an ongoing thing. Um, like so that's long, sort of right? where I got to that. Exactly. So, um, so I'm, I'm still kind of playing with that idea, but, um, but that's where I've been lately. I think it helps to give tools tools to artists. So uh, whether it's uh, workshops or uh, you know measurement tools or or papers that talk about it, but so many different approaches that that help them overcome barriers. So what do you see as the main barriers now? And it could be funding, right? It could be also just the way that our, the art schools are set up, the way that artists are are, are educated. Uh, I guess th those barriers are ones that I'm interested in in a better understanding, so that we can overcome some of them and get to that level of impact that's absolutely necessary. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think, you know, one of the barriers that I that I really wanted to address with this new thinking is that I think it's it's ironic but given that there's there's so much more attention now and interest from, you know, advocacy groups um, and scientists and, you know, climate initiatives in working with arts and culture and there's a lot more funding going towards it. Um, at least in the U.S. and um, but the and, and there's interest from the art side too. So there's a lot of artists that are doing this kind of work. And what I noticed is that the majority of that is still really focused on this kind of communications, waking people up part of the process. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think if you look at you know three quarters of people at least in the U.S. believe in climate change now, believe it's real. Um, a third of people are very worried about it. Um, that it, it's hard for me to believe that's not enough to make transformational change if we really wanted to do it. And so it feels to me like we're misdiagnosing the problem a little bit. And so in terms of barriers, one of the things that I'm trying to figure out a way around is actually to guide artists and cultural practitioners and funders to kind of think about a broader spectrum of interventions um, and focus in on the places where we probably will get the most bang for our buck. And I think for the arts, a lot of that means supporting much deeper, more transformational, more local, um, and, and more participatory work actually, so that it's, it's kind of creative practice that people actually do, um, instead of sort of the consumer model of being a spectator of something someone else has created, which is still kind of in that cognitive mental space. artist David Haley. We now need aesthetics to sensitize us to other ways of life.
Yeah, community engaged arts have a long history of, of addressing social issues, but no one has ever had this level of challenge uh, mm -hmm. in front of them. There's a one of the interviews and I've done recently is with uh, Seth Klein, who wrote a book called A Good War that does a parallel between the Canada's effort in the Second World War and what is needed now in terms of the scale. Uh, and he's talking about how artists in the Second World War rallied people towards the war effort. And, and you can't make a direct connection, but there is a connection in terms of scale mm -hmm. <laughs> or, uh, and and uh, and yet you don't want to start uh, instrumentalizing artists and saying well you have to do this kind of art you know or else the world's going to end because uh, artists have to be true to themselves and in the way that they work but uh, I think I think there's a tipping point that's coming tipping point in terms of of artists uh, getting a, not only a seat at the table but playing the role that's that's um, going to be very useful for to advance um, those those blockages, but but things have to change quickly. And I I I'm sometimes concerned that that there's a sense of inertia See I, I, I'm at a loss for words because it it there's part of me believes that we can we can do this and a part of me doesn't isn't seeing it happening yet at the scale that is necessary. Mm -hmm. I see bits and pieces and we've talked about this over email, you know, there's little there's little pieces. How do you connect those dots and how do you create the synergy uh, so that we can move forward uh, without, you know, I mean, it'll be transformative necessarily, but how can it be, uh, how can it actually work with integrity so that uh, the arts community really feels genuinely compelled to do this work uh, mm -hmm. because, because it's necessary work. And it's, and it, you know, it can be exciting work and be joyful work. We forget how joyful life is uh, it's true that the catastrophe that's coming catastrophe is 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 very uh, dark and yet life we're still alive we're still breathing uh, um, every moment and, and there's that sense of possibility that I, I think artists really understand possibilities and overcoming barriers no it's confusing and i but i think you hit on something really important which is you know, artists are very good. The artistic process is a process of going into the unknown um, again and again, not knowing what the outcome is going to be um, and working through that process and coming out the other side. And I think that that's actually a model for the way we all, none of us know, you know, the answer here or the solution, what the world is going to look like in the future. We know some of the things we have to do. But in terms of what does a society look like that's done those things and how are we going to live and how are we going to relate to each other? Um, we, we don't really know what that looks like. I mean, there's some models of indigenous cultures and things that we can look to, but in terms of the complexity and the diversity um, of kind of people and functions and societies that are going to have to be doing that in a new way, um, I think we're really on a frontier and, and that's, kind of a main reason why I think artists are, are useful. And, and that doesn't have to be doing art about climate change as a theme, right? Like, I think there's a lot of opportunity for artists who, and art just in doing, I mean, I talked to a, a group, um, I did some interviews with environmental justice groups some years ago, and there's a group called El Puente in, um, in Brooklyn, and they use art as part of their environmental justice work and but it's not it's not themed as environmental art um and i was talking to them and i was saying you know you guys must have a really constrained budgets and you have to be very discerning about how you spend your time why are you doing all this theater work primarily theater and murals and they said well you know art helps people 
realize that they can. People who feel totally disempowered, it helps them realize that they have power to make something in the world that never existed before. And once they've practiced that and they've done that in one arena, they start to believe that that's something that they can do in more and more places in the world and in their lives. And I thought that was really profound. Um, so I, I think there's, I think we as a sector can be more creative about the potential for creativity in this domain. Writer Charles Eisenstein Expository prose generates resistance. But stories touch a deeper place in the soul. Well, I'd like to end with uh, the topic of they leadership because like you and I were at this, this uh, five-day event that was right before and uh, soften we, the soul. planes started stopping flying in, so in uh, mid-March of 2020. We barely got out alive. Yeah, well, we were, we were lucky. It was the last <laughs> event uh, where we were. I was together with people and able to touch. We actually sang and danced uh, and did some some wonderful things together as a as a group of leaders. But um, what what are some of the the gaps or possibilities at a leadership level? Because you you know you can be young or old leader, but but uh, how how is that notion of leadership and climate change uh, or, or arts and climate uh, unfolding? Um, what, what are some of the gaps and possibilities there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I mean, you know, part of my participation in that program, um, you know, and I, I did some similar work at the Banff, Banff Center um, with cultural leadership. And um, the theme, it was really intending to connect the idea of civic leadership and creative leadership and what do those mean? And I think, um, there's kind of a need for a greater blending of the two that civic, you know, the, the kind of civic spirit needs to be brought more into the creative space. Um, and I think it's happening, but I think a lot of artists don't know how to, you know, kind of own that um, yet. And that's what that Julie's Bicycle program was about. And then I think um, likewise in my work with a lot of folks in, for example, the water utility sector and, um, other sectors that they need to tap into a much greater creativity. Um, and, and not just, I mean, it's great to bring in an artist in residence. And I was having this conversation with some of them yesterday. And I said, you know, because they all, they want to bring in artists in residence. They're very excited about it because they see the potential of a different way of seeing things. And, you know, one of the things we're encouraging them to do is actually recognize their own creative capacity and just break out of the kind of stifling rigidity of the forms that they've been given, like these bureaucratic structures that um, really constrain our ability to think outside the box. And I think, you know, our economy does the same thing, right? I mean, we take this economy to be this inevitable thing that we can't change, and yet we created it. Um, there's no reason why we can't pursue, um, you know, climate strategies that might do something different in the economy. And yet that's, that's such a third rail. So I think um, that's an aspect of leadership, but even more so, I think, um, you know, questioning, I've been questioning a lot, the idea of leadership um, in our culture, so much of it, you know, it's sort of this idea that the leader is the one at the top. Um, or if you're a leader, you're, you know, you're the one on the, on the podcast, you're the one at the conferences. And 
Um, I think for this issue in particular, we need everybody to find the place where they can be a leader. So maybe you're a mom, maybe you're a, you know, a community gardener, maybe you're whatever. Um, and how do you exercise leadership in the domain that you are in? Right. Um, so that's what I would say. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, what, what, some of the things we talked about at the creative leadership course was the notion of privilege. And I've been, I've been working through some of that myself as a white male North American, you know, what, what, what does privilege mean, uh, truly mean, not in a kind of glib kind of way, but in a kind of lived way and, and, and truly responsible way and responsive way. And, and it's mostly about voice, you know, it's, it's about, not just sharing your voice, but shifting your voice. And and at one point, I was listening to myself speak, and I I, I used the term uh, ecological mansplaining. And you know, man, mansplaining. You know, I'm not really mm-hmm. a mansplainer, but a little bit. But that, that's what I sounded like. And I thought, yeah, that's that's not good. <laughs> and so you can self correct, right? It's not that hard. You, yeah. You hear, you you see yourself, you hear yourself, you say, oh, that's no good. <laughs> right. Stop it. <laughs> just stop. Anyway. <laughs> That's a good point, though. It's sort of like when do when is our leadership to actually step back? When is that like an act of leadership? You know, given the context that we're in. Well, is there anything else you uh, wanted to say? We've touched quite a few topics. Uh, just wanted to give you an opportunity if there's anything else uh, you wanted to cover or mention. Yeah, I guess just one thing um, because you did mention, you know, the kind of the. The fact that we may be, you know, while we may be trying to solve things, we may also experience some unraveling or some continued, we will likely, we know we will experience some more events, um, some more challenges, um, even if we turn it around tomorrow. And I think that there's a really important role for the arts, not only in trying to kind of halt the progression of carbon emissions, um, but in helping communities adapt to climate events, but also the pace of change um, that we know is coming. And whether it's good change or bad change, change can be very disruptive and scary. And so, you know, I think the role that culture has played throughout time has been to help make people, help people make sense of their world. Um, And I think that that's something that is going to be really important now as our world is sort of topsy-turvy for a while. Um, And that could be, you know, artists are great because I think they see that as kind of an opportunity and interesting. Um, and the rest of us could do that too. Well, on that rather hopeful note, uh, because I, I do believe that uh, adaptation is is something where the artists will play a, a very important role because a lot of the damage is done to the planet. Uh, it, it will heal on the very long term, but but we need to adapt to what we've done to it and, and reinvent the world uh, in a way that is in a way, better, better socially, better culturally than it was. Uh, I think that's a, a vision that artists can bring and then implement it in through their work. So thank you. We will uh, talk again. And uh, yeah. I really appreciate uh, having this opportunity to, to converse with you. It's really just a beginning, but uh, I, I think people appreciate your your accumulated wisdom through the writings and also the things you said. I think they're really worth uh, thinking about, you know, and maybe going back and... and uh, and just uh, stepping back and 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 taking some of those ideas and and trying to to um, to see how they what they what they how they fit into our own lives, you know, the 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 various um, 
topics that we covered today. So thanks a lot and uh, yeah, see you thanks again. Thanks for having Stay. me. Okay. Sounds good.